Historians will try and tell you that the 2010 started on January 1, 2010, but I reckon there's a victory fan the decade started on March 20. And just like how the sound of the ball dropping at Times Square in New York symbolises the beginning of a new year and the advent of change, whether we're prepared for it or not, in Melbourne on the night of March 20, the sound of another round ball also signified the beginning of something new. It indicated that change was on its way, whether we were prepared for it or not. It was the sound that the days of entitlement were over. That night, 44,560 people were packed inside Etihad Stadium for the grand final against Sydney FC. The atmosphere with the seats in was right up there with as good as we have ever seen at a victory game. But as Kevin Musket stepped up, a quiet hush overcame the stadium. That sound of the ball hitting metal was so crisp, it reverberated around the ground and inside my brain for eternity. He's missed! Would you believe it? We had no idea at the time that the Kevin Musket penalty miss in the shootout of the 2010 Grand Final would set off a sequence of events that would go on to change the victory forever. The 2010 started with an ending. A club reborn, but a club not ready for a transition. It set the path for a journey back to relevance. Throughout the decade, there were a few speed bumps. There were a few championships too. But now, as the decade ends, a new sense of uncertainty begins to linger. This is FVS. The 2010s. a huge sports fan growing up from the age of three or four going to AFL games with my dad or to the Moody Valley racetrack the harness racing at night pretty much my whole life has been basically uh, watching competitors compete and judging everything on winning or losing and in 2006 I I have always had a, a, an interest in, in football, but in 2006, uh, me and my mate Fabian in uh, we were in year 10, I think, we went down to uh, Federation Square to watch the uh, the first World Cup game against Japan, uh, uh, Australia versus Japan. And I remember going to that and, and watching that. That was my first real experience, my, li- my first live football watching experience. And I remember just being so taken aback by everything, uh, the, the noise, the passion, uh, and just the overall atmosphere. Uh, and this was just at Federation Square. There was like 5,000 people packed in to watch the World Cup game against Japan. And of course, Australia went down 1-0 early. And then Tim Cahill comes back with about 10 minutes to go in the, the first group stage game. And he scores two goals and that's followed up by John Aloisi's uh, third goal to give Australia a 3-1 win, an unlikely win. And I just remember as being a 16-year-old kid, that was like the most amazing thing I ever experienced as a sporting fan up until that point. And I remember it was, you know, late at night and everyone's you know, going down, down to March down Burke Street to Parliament House. People are running into 7-Eleven and racking chips off the stalls. And there was just pandemonium. And I remember just thinking, I have to be part of this. I just have to be a part of it. So me and my friends we were high schoolers at that age. We decided to get Melbourne Victory memberships for the second season. And then 
we stood in the North Terrace uh, for the, the second game of that year against Sydney FC, the first game at Telstra Dome, as it was known. And the, the, once again, the sound and the atmosphere was just amazing, unreal, unlike anything I've ever, ever experienced. And that year, of course, was the year that Melbourne Victory were, were dominant. In, in this season, they run away. They won the first seven games of the season and then they uh, ended up winning the, the double, the Premier's Plate and the Championship. And I just remember, how good is this? I followed Essendon and you know we hadn't done much in a little while in AFL, which was my primary love, um, AFL at the time. And I just remember you know being part of a championship year and, and being part of this thing where, this community where as Victory fans were on the online forums um, back in those days um, and we were just 16-year-old kids running amok, um, prank calling SEN and just causing all types of ruckus. And I just remember how, how great it was those years and just that kind of time in in my life and I think as victory fans we became fairly entitled because the A-League was an eight-team competition and only a certain amount of teams can win it each and every year and then we won again in 2009 and it seemed like you know this was just to be expected and then 2010 we played against Sydney FC at home and we lost in a penalty shootout. Kevin Musket misses a penalty. The first penalty he's ever missed for Melbourne Victory in his Melbourne Victory career. I remember at that stage I was 20 years old or 19, 19 years old, almost 20 years old. And I remember just going to the Nixon after the match. Um, it was the Nixon Hotel just outside the stadium. And I remember just being out there and I was I was disappointed, but I wasn't distraught. And I always thought to myself, why wasn't I more unhappy at that stage? We just lost the grand final to our most closest rivals, our, our fiercest enemies. And I, I think I just figured that we'd always be there, that we'd always just be winning grand finals and we'd always just be around there or close abouts. And then something happened and the age of entitlement ended for, for Melbourne Victory, at least for that time. And I think we just I just expected that Melbourne Victory would be there once again the following year. And only Merrick, his time wasn't over at Melbourne Victory, but it was getting close to the end. And only Merrick always kind of had uh, a little bit of criticism from the supporters. And the, the results were there in retrospect. We were probably harsh on any Merrick, but the results were there. Um, but the playing style was a bit drab, it was a bit boring. Victory became known as a Scottish club because of Ernie Merrick and the tactics that he would deploy and just the, the fact that maybe we're a little bit boring in certain aspects. But, you know, history will probably come back and, and say that uh, if you compare then to now, we weren't such a, a boring and drab side that we're actually okay. But Ernie Merrick, I think, just because of the fact that uh, he was there for so long, um, became a little bit stale and the... Fans were, were not happy as results, and I think that after that 2010 season and when we lost the grand final, um, I think fans just were a little bit tired and needed change. And even though Ernie Merrick had one more year after that 2010 grand final, things really got stale. And if I go back to the ins and outs of that 2010-11 season, Archie Thompson was out pretty much the entire season. He did his ACL in the 2010 Grand Final. He was out. Mitchell Langerak had gone and Nicky Ward had gone. Some crucial players for us. And coming in that year was Diego Ferreira, Peter Frangic, Michael Pekovic, Jeff Calloway, Danny Allsop returning from his overseas stint, and Ricky Digno, the, um, the dribble king, as we may remember him. And it was just a season that just really didn't reach any kind of heights. Melbourne victory finished fifth on the year. Uh, they won 11 
uh, drew 10 and lost 9. And then they were bundled out in the first week of finals. Now, that's not such a bad result, you know, coming you know, back after a championship, or sorry, a, a grand final year in which we appeared in the grand final and then um, making the finals again. But something changed and it was the, the change at the top that really brought along this whole domino effect. And in January 2011, the board and the chairman uh, was changed and Jeff Lord who was a good businessman but not a football person gave up his post as the chairman of Melbourne Victory and in came Anthony DiPietro. Now Anthony DiPietro is a good businessman and he's also a football person. He essentially became the Don of the Melbourne football mafia, as I like to call it. He became the most powerful man among this Melbourne football mafia. And when I talk about the Melbourne football mafia, I'm referring to names like Di Pietro, uh, Philopolis, and also Sticker. If you ever go to a victory medal event or a victory in business and you see these guys at the bar afterwards and they're all, how they're all embracing each other and how they all talk to each other, they're well-connected businessmen. And it's a bit like the meeting of the five families in The Godfather. This is, this is the Melbourne football mafia. If you don't think it exists, uh, Western United exists for this sole reason because the Melbourne football mafia have power far beyond your imagination in this country. And Anthony DiPietro is the don of the Melbourne football mafia. He wanted change and he wanted to overhaul the, the victory. And he was over the era of Ernie Merrick and especially the failings in Asia. After Melbourne victory lost to Gambro Osaka 5-1 in March of 2011, DiPietro decided to clear house. Now, not only did Ernie Merrick go, but also we lost Kevin Musket. Those were the two cruxes of our team and our history. This was a real new era of Melbourne victory. In came Mehmet Durakovic, a rookie coach who'd been part of the youth setup for Melbourne victory. He was given the task of leading the new era for Melbourne, as well as Francis Awaratife, who was appointed director of football. Now, Francis Awaratife doesn't have any history as a director of football within Clubland. His basic uh, pedigree and his, his experience is essentially just being a, a guy on the, the world game is that a few smart things and that seemed to be the audition um, being a pundit on the world game we went into the 2011-2012 season with a new coach a new football director and a new captain in adrian layer speaking back to fvs a few years ago in 2016 adrian layer said the vibe around the club was quite weird with this whole new change and it was it was a pretty unstable period at the club we hadn't um i suppose regenerated the, the, the playing list and, um, you know, we hadn't really planned that well for, for you know, players like Muskie moving on and, and, our, and our playing list getting a lot older. So, um, you know, them coming in and then the Jilton was, it was, a, it was a tough time. I, you know, I look back and it made me stronger, but, um, especially at the time when I was club captain, I, you know, I, I felt a huge amount of responsibility because of it. Um, you know, looking back, I, I probably put too much pressure on myself and probably took too much blame for, for the way things were going because a lot of it was out of my control. But, um, you know, when you're in that situation, you you, you just want the team to do well. And, and uh, that was a very difficult time. But even with a rookie coach and a rookie football director, Di Pietro wanted to make another statement. He wanted to bring in a marquee man. That leads us to Harry Kuehl. What about Daddy
Cool was Melbourne Victory's first dip into the superstar marquee waters. Yes, we had the likes of Kevin Musket and Archie Thompson in the past, but the signing of Cool was a statement by the new regime. The negotiation process to lure the former Liverpool star was long and tedious. Speculation went on for months as the finer details of the contract were hashed out, which included a possible role for his actress wife on Neighbours. Eventually, a revolutionary and unprecedented three-year deal was brokered. Harry Kuehl would not receive a guaranteed salary under the deal, instead receiving the bulk of any extra revenue the club generated on ticket sales, memberships and commercial deals. Despite the complicated, drawn-out negotiations, the excitement among Victory fans was something we'd never seen before and haven't really seen since, not even with Honda. Scores of fans were there for Kuehl's arrival at the airport, waiting with Melbourne Victory scarves to drape over him, as well as a crudely made word art sign. Looking back on those scenes at the airport or at the Amy Park unveiling in which 2,000 fans turned out to see Anthony DiPietro present him with his jersey, if someone had told you how this was all going to play out, you simply wouldn't have believed them. Harry Kuehl turned up in Melbourne a month before the season started and his lack of preparation showed. He didn't score his first goal until November 26, almost two months into the season. The team, under new coach Mehmet Durakovic, never were able to click into gear, much like Kuehl. His sole season with victory yielded eight goals and four assists in 25 games as Melbourne finished eighth and missed out on finals. It was a season that promised so much, but by the end resulted in two coach sackings, as well as a football manager, Francis Waratifi, resigning, and our marquee man taking the first plane out of Melbourne, playing the next season in Qatar. The new era under De Pietro was off to a disastrous start. Nick Slade was Victory Media and Communications Manager for five full seasons during the 2010s. Nick, thank you for joining us um, on our first. No it's been a long time coming. Can you take us all the way back to the first time you heard that Melbourne Victory were a legitimate chance of signing Harry Kuehl? As a media manager in AFL-dominated city, do your hands just rub together at the thought of signing one of the best players to be ever produced out of Australia? Yeah, pretty much. Um, as you articulated there, he um, the deal was on the table for, for many months, and I think um, we were at the point where we often thought it was going to happen and we were an announcement was imminent um, and then invariably something would happen and it would get delayed or pushed back. And, and funnily enough, um, the season prior, um, there had been whispers around that it, there was something potentially happening. Um, it didn't eventuate at that time. Um, and then um, obviously the year later when Mehmet was um, head coach, um, there were a lot of rumblings around pretty much through that whole pre-season period. Uh, and then when the deal did get done, um, from my perspective, it was a mixture of both um, excitement um, and also what the hell um, <laughs> am I going to do here with um, Harry Kuehl coming to Melbourne? And Anthony DiPietro at the press conference when we announced that we'd signed him um, made the statement that it was the, the biggest signing in the history of Australian domestic sports. And um, I don't think anyone could argue with that considering where Harry was in the in his career at the time and, and, and following his exploits at both Leeds United and... And, um, of course, Liverpool. So what were the opportunities that immediately presented themselves to the club? I know that um, Brett Emerton was returning for Sydney FC and there was that um, that you know first round match against Sydney FC um, that was billed as Kuehl versus Emerton. Um, ended up being a, a nil-all draw in front of 40,000 fans. Kind of a, a symbol for how the rest of the victory season would go. What were the, the commercial opportunities that presented themselves for the victory? Do you, um, do you remember? Uh, well... 
they were coming from everywhere. It was really interesting. And having been there, um, obviously, for the season before Ernie's last season in charge, um, the media interest in the club um, was, was was relatively strong considering how competitive Melbourne is. But when Harry came, um, every man and their dog um, wanted a piece of him. Um, the interview requests were all for him, as you can imagine, which mm. made my job particularly difficult because obviously I couldn't I couldn't say yes to to everyone, and, and I was caught between a rock and a hard place because while <clears throat> one part of me needed to um, respect and reward the football journos and the football media outlets who had been covering the game for a significant period of time leading up to that, another part of me was saying, well, I need to get biggest bang for the buck for our buck here and get Harry on Channel 7 for instance who, mm-hmm. who weren't um, you know often down at our press conferences and our media opportunities so it was quite tricky balancing balancing um, you know the, the, the media who turned up week in week out with also giving um, giving the, 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 the blow-ins if you will um, access to Harry because his brand was obviously far bigger than um, both Melbourne Victory and, and also the A-League and, and sport in this country in general to be honest um, yeah. so you know he was getting I was getting requests for him from everywhere from Sunrise at five o'clock in the morning to local Darwin radio stations to radio stations in Townsville, local papers in Perth, Adelaide. Um, the first few away trips we did were were really interesting. Pretty much the first time we went interstate to um, either Adelaide or, or Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it was, the first time we we landed in that city with Harry. There was just an absolute circus at the airport. Um, every man and their dog was there. There were cameras, um, both um, video and still, newspapers, microphones. Um, security was was alerted ahead of time before we arrived to make sure that um, you know he was he was kept out of any 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 issues or any trouble. If um, you know the the press pack got a bit overzealous, um, it really was it was a, it really was a, a, a travelling circus. Um, a couple of times we tried to fly him in early um, to avoid avoid that happening, but um, they're as they often are. They're always one step ahead. Um, and had you know strong contacts at airports who, who tipped them off about his potential arrival. So um, yeah, it was it was yeah it was there was nothing we could have done to have prepared for for his arrival. Um, he was at the time um, probably Australia's most recognisable sportsman, mm-hmm. um, and to get him to the A League, looking back on it now, was just such a massive coup. It's a pity it didn't work out as well as we had of all hoped, but um, there's no doubt about it that you know when 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 Harry was in town, interest in the sport and um, and the club was at an all time high. And how does Harry deal with that? I mean, as I said at the top, there his his contract was pretty much predicated on revenue rather than an actual salary. So it seems like you know he's very much into building the brand and commercial deals to to try and get his his bang for his own buck. I suppose um, I know you know from from doing a Melbourne Vision podcast for the last five years and and requesting uh, media opportunities from certain players. Sometimes uh, media managers such as yourself and other people that have come and gone at Melbourne Victory will kind of say, you know, this player's done too much recently or he, you know, he's, he's taking a rest from media from now. Harry Kuehl was pretty much had, had to be the guy 100% of the time. Is that right? How, how did he deal with that? Was that a distraction from his overall output on the playing field? It was an interesting situation because I, I think that deal was largely cut by... Um, his manager Bernie Mandich, who was a very shrewd operator, yes. um, and I'm not I'm not sure Harry was totally up to speed with um, the ins and outs of of that deal. Um, the way he he conducted himself around um, 
media opportunities and what we needed him to do and what we wanted him to do wouldn't suggest that he pieced together the the value um, that came with doing those things. Um, it was always it, it, it always felt like it was uh, it needed to be a pretty hard sell to get him to do mm. um, the, the media that we needed him to do, even though he was a marquee player, even though it was part of part of his contract as a marquee player to do promotional opportunities. And every player at the club who signs the contract has a certain number of appearances they need to make. Harry's was obviously higher given, you know, his stature within within the game and also um, being that marquee player, as we mentioned. Um, but it, 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 it did seem like the deal that was cut by Bernie Mandich may not have um, necessarily been communicated um, as well as it could have been to Harry. Um, at least by judging by his actions, because he was certainly, you know, reluctant to do um, anything more than he really had to do. Um, and so many requests that I got for him just, you know, never saw the light of day. We put pretty much all of them in front, aside from the ridiculous ones at, you know, crazy times of day or, or whatnot, or, or, yeah. or, you know, Darwin radio stations that weren't going to potentially put bums on seats at Amy Park. Um we, you know, presented most of them to him and his management, um, and there was a general air of reluctance to to do many of them, which to me and, and to the club didn't make a lot of sense given what the yeah the, the potential rewards were for um, you know increasing exposure around Melbourne Victory, the A League, the games, the fixtures, him being in town, him playing at stadiums. Um, so it, it was a it was a it was a it was a confusing time. It was a lot of head scratching going on around what the maybe. The objectives from Team Kuehl were yep. around his brand and, and, and the legacy he wanted to leave in, in the A-League. Um, so it certainly wasn't um, as easy as we may have thought. Um, and I'm not sure how long it took them to realise that the, the deal they cut probably wasn't the best deal they could have yeah. got given, give, given um, you know, the the numbers that they need to pull through the gates to make it particularly lucrative. Um, obviously, they're coming off a very Melbourne victory is coming off a pretty strong base as well, so um, there wasn't heaps of room for for growth, um, and in turn um, to put um, money in Harry in his camp's pocket. Um, I wasn't really across the the, the finer detail of, of his of his contract, but. Um, what was reported, I believe, to be pretty close to the mark in terms of revenue share around increased ticket sales and membership sales, et cetera, and merchandise. Um, but you wouldn't have known that um, in terms of the the responses we got from Mr. Camp around various media opportunities. The big ones he was interested in, if it was a big deal, if it was, you know, Channel 7 or, um, you know, 60 Minutes mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, um, Sports Sunday and Wild World of Sports back then uh, on Channel Nine, um, he'd be right up for it. But you know, there was there seemed to be a bit of, bit of um, yeah disinterest around the, the sort of run of the mill everyday opportunities, which were probably the right ones for him to do, given the audience that those publications were speaking to, and they were probably talking to rusted on football fans, yeah. um, and they're the ones that will likely buy tickets and come through the gate. So it was a really interesting time, um, and I think. If um, you know if Harry had his time again, I think he would have probably um, he would have done many things different during his time playing in the A League, both at um, at Melbourne Victory and that other club down the road. Yeah, so I, I guess that also coincided, unluckily, with a, a pretty bad year in victory terms and one of the lowest average crowds of the, of, uh, of its history. So um, yeah, that deal probably didn't end up being a smart one in retrospect. <laughs> Is it a little bit different in terms of dealing with a megastar compared to, I guess, your you, you run-of-the-mill um, A-League player um, with regards to media requests? Because I assume that um, when someone requests a, a media 
opportunity with uh, with Lee Broxham. You simply just text him and say, you know, do you want to do this? Is it a bit different with Harry Cool? Cool? Do you have to have to go? Do you have to go through a, a team of people to um to get a, an answer? Originally, we did. Yeah. So for the first probably couple of months, um, I was going through um, Bernie Mandich. But then when Bernie went back to Europe, it was his brother. Nick, who was on te- on ground in in Australia, um, which in itself again just 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 didn't make a lot of sense because as, as you'd know, like a lot of these media requests, there's a, there's, a, there's an element of urgency with them. Like you know, radios want someone on in two hours. Like by the time you've you've got something in writing from them, you forwarded that on to um, the players' manager. The players' managers looked at it. The players' manager then spoke to the player about it. The players thought about it. By that, you know, by the the time that the loop's closed, the opportunity's gone. So um, after the first couple of months, they were sort of sounding us out a bit as well, I think, you know, coming from Europe and, you know, wondering what, you know, what, what the quality of administration would be like um, in Australia and um, more notably at an A-League club. I think they worked out pretty quickly that we we all knew what we were doing um, and we were, we were capable of getting the results that they were hoping to get um, in terms of his media appearances. But, um, yeah, after a couple of months, we just ended up going straight straight to the source um you had a couple of phones harry so um you would um generally you know try and call him if you didn't get him it was um it was a text and um look to be fair he was he was he was he was good to deal with um he wasn't you know he wasn't he didn't get particularly excited about media appearances um and you could tell that when he was doing them um but he was he was always good to deal with if you called him he'd call you back if you sent him a text he'd generally reply um so no qualms from that end but um yeah look guys like broxy um adrian layer these boys um yeah with with the, with um with the guys that are just absolutely ridiculously good operators and really helpful you shoot them a text and it's you know 99 times out of out of 100 it's like yep no problem um it was probably a little bit different with harry but um to his credit he was um he was pretty responsive which i wasn't expecting i thought it might have been a bit hard to get hold of him um but he was um he was good to deal with but yeah just i don't think just to to follow up on my earlier point i don't think they ever quite really optimised the opportunity around um, what they could have got out of the market here um, post his signing. So was there discontent within the club behind closed doors, number one, about the the contract negotiations? I think that it was first reported in, in June, and this was a bit rare for Melbourne Victory because they've been famous for, for being really tight-lipped in, internally about um, who they're chasing, but this one got out in, in about June, and it was drawn out to August when I think he signed, and then he didn't arrive until September. I think it was September 2nd, 2011, um, and then you know that's a, a month before the season um, starts. He, he turns up... Um, um, the, the the performances aren't great. He doesn't score until the end of November. Was there discontent among uh, the, the higher ups behind closed doors um, that perhaps he his mind wasn't on um, on field performances? No, I don't think so. I think everyone at the club was just delighted to have yeah. him here, uh, have him here. Um, the players the players were as well. He he seemed to um, transition into the changed room really well um obviously had the respect of all his um all his teammates very quickly him turning up late wasn't ideal but you you see that a lot though in the a-league yeah. unfortunately like diego before tony popovich um started at um, perth diego castro was often not back in australia till you know a month or six weeks eight weeks before the season um you do sort of half pre-season and you do get that a lot with the marquee players and the senior players um we had, you know, we've had players over the years, especially on those marquee contracts, who do everything they can to to draw out the um, 
the signing on the dotted line just to extend their their, their break in the northern hemisphere between seasons. Uh, Pablo Contreras was another one. He he um that went on forever and he turned up quite late um, mm-hmm. into pre season. Um, it's not a great example but, though. He said he didn't, he didn't no, play too he didn't play he, too well. Yeah, <laughs> we did, we don't think we quite got the best out of, uh, yeah. out, of out of out of Pablo, but um he did score a a good goal in the Asian Champions yeah. League at uh, Guangzhou. Um, but yeah, he um. No, look, yeah, there was no discontent with, with Harry. I think what, and they may well have been if, if the season had have been going okay, but I think because the season was going so poorly, I think there were just other things to distract from maybe Harry's um, mm-hmm. lack of fitness. And I mean, he was always he was always under the spotlight. There was no doubting that. But um, as a team, we obviously weren't playing very well. We weren't getting the results. Um, and yeah, it was... A really strange year, if I'm honest. Um, first season I was there, I was um, with Ernie and Gary Cole. And then, before you know it, um, two two guys of, of their stature within the club were gone. Um, and Mehmet Jurakovic was installed coach. And um, Francis Waratifi was football director. Harry turned up. Um, Anthony DiPietro um, was the new chairman. Jeff Lord was gone. Um, Richard Wilson was CEO. Like, it just, there was such such a huge amount of change yeah. um, from one season to the next. And I think if you'd speak to anyone that's worked in club land, um, when there's that much change um, beyond just the change room, when there's that much change, um, there's always going to be a real real period of transition. It just felt like that season was a, a transition season. Um, and unfortunately, it just coincided with the biggest signing um, the club's ever made. Yeah, that's exactly the next question I was going to ask. Was it a bit weird during the year? I guess it was. Um, you've got a rookie coach, a rookie um, football manager, a new chairman. Um, Kevin Musket also um, retires and Adrian Lair is the new captain. It must have just felt very weird. Um, as you said, probably just a transition um, period. But it was one that was a year that seemed like it took a few years to recover from. Um, but a real, I guess, a, a pivotal moment in, in Melbourne victory history and, and something that I guess the fans refer to as the, the dark days. Um, do you think the club capitalises best it could commercially considering the circumstances in club's form? I mean, was it was it difficult because of the club's form to actually end up benefiting too much from a Harry Kuehl signing? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we're, we're in the... We're, we're in the business of results. Mm-hmm. Um, fans want results. I think if you asked most fans, they'd happily have a, a, a eleven, you know, no names out on the pitch if we were winning every week, as opposed to eleven superstars and you know, putting you know, winning the odd game here and there and putting in some in different performances. Um, results count for everything. That season, there's no doubt that um, it was probably outside of season one, probably the um, the worst season we've had for a number of reasons, um, and. Yeah, it was it was it was really interesting. Like, um, I, I I had Ernie season one as coach. Season two we had Mehmet and then Jim Jilton. Season three we had my my third season rather we had Ange, and then f- my fourth season there we had um, um, Kevin. So um, or fourth and fifth season had Kevin. Um, so I, up until Marco Kurtz came along this season, I'd, I'd worked with um, all those coaches in the spaces of space of four years, um, all, all Melbourne Victory coaches, coaches in the space of four years. So it was a really, it wasn't just that year alone. It was a really interesting period in the club's history. I'm um, obviously getting Ange thinking, right, 
we've righted the ship here. We're in for some some success. Um, first season did a great job, and then I think four or five games into his second season in charge, he was snapped up by the Socceroos, and yeah. um, obviously Kevin came in and did a terrific job. Um, but it was it was it was a really on and off the pitch. It was a really um, interesting period for the club, and I, I returned there for a season. Um, a couple of years ago when we won the grand final against Newcastle. Yeah. Um, I did that season and um, it was good to go back after two and a half seasons away and see how stable it was because it certainly felt for those few peri- uh, for those few years um, post-2010, it, um, you didn't realise it at the time. But um, when, you, when I came out the back of it, I was like, wow, that was like, that was a, a rocky period for the club on and off the pitch. Um, and terrific leaders in there, like um, Anthony DiPietro and, and his board have done great things. And um, Trent Jacobs in there now as CEO um, is making some good moves. And Kevin did a terrific job for the club as both coach and player. And he's, he's moved on now, but his legacy will remain. And um, I think the stability around him the whole time. Um, being there and, and the one constant was absolutely pivotal because um, who knows what what could have happened if if um, Kevin had a left the club post retirement as a player um, and gone elsewhere because he him being a constant I think was you know looking back on it was absolutely crucial to to keeping um, the club um, on the straight and narrow for that period of time where it was quite volatile. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I heard heard a rumor that. Um you you had some best man duties at a wedding on the grand final day, uh, twenty eighteen. Is that right? I did, I did, I did. Yeah, we finished fourth, and I, I, um, I was thinking, oh, look, you know, we're going to struggle to make the grand final here. But um, I was locked in for for best man a couple of months, well, a few months before the grand final, and literally a week after, um, he, no, it was, must must have been six months. A week after, I was asked to be best man. Um, Greg O'Rourke and the FFA came down to Amy Park and presented. Um, the season plan and all the marketing plans and everything and the fixture to, mm-hmm. to both Melbourne City and, and Melbourne Victory, and he said um, that oh we're going to move the grand final to a to a Saturday night this year because always the grand final's been on a Sunday yeah. it's, it's reverted back to a Sunday since, and I was like oh, okay all right well you know a lot of water to go under the bridge yet so um, you know I get too carried away, and then of course we make the grand final um, from fourth um, and uh, yeah the only. A-League Grand Final to date, as far as I'm aware, that um, has been on a Saturday night was the uh, the uh, on, on the same day that I was meant to be best man at a <laughs> wedding. So uh, I was in the bed, but well, you know, it was, it was my job. So yeah. um, unfortunately, I was, there was no getting out of it. Um, so I was in the bad books there, um, not so much with my mate, but with his bride to be for a little uh, period of time. But um, yeah, that was uh, that spot on your mail was very good. I, I had to uh, bail on uh, best man duties on the eve of the wedding, which was uh, extremely uh, difficult um, to do, and, and no doubt had me in the in the doghouse for a little period of time there. Yeah, certainly. Um, to wrap up, what do you think the the club learnt from that experience, and especially with Harry Kuehl? It seemed like you know. After that, they retreated a little bit. They didn't want to do the the huge marquee star. There's a lot of a, a circus around the whole situation. Um, they dipped their toe into the water again with Cascade Honda. Uh, that didn't work out uh, as much as they would have liked. Um, what do you think they learnt from from the whole experience? Is it a bit of a, a once bitten, twice twice shy type of uh, situation? Uh, look. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I wasn't there for Cascade last last mm-hmm. season. Um, I did. There were significant learnings, though, post Harry around um, you know not putting all your eggs in, in into to one basket, um, and also, 
I think you know Mammoth's record and Jim Matilden's record as as head coaches weren't weren't great, but Mammoth and Jim were both very good in a sense that um, Harry was treated just like any other player. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear you hear stories about how Alessandro Del Piero had his own change room at Sydney FC. Um, away from the other players, his own little um, dressing room, if you will. Um, there was never any um, any kind of pandering to, to Harry in that respect. And if there had been any requests to do um, things that, you know, took Harry away from his teammates and being treated like any other player, they would have been knocked on the head. Um, so I think they got a lot of stuff right with 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 Harry. I think just the timing was wrong. I think if it had a, if it had a happened a year earlier with Ernie, as it was as I mentioned before, it was briefly mooted to be happening mm-hmm. twelve months earlier, or a year later with Ange, I think um, you know we'd be lauding Harry as a as a victory legend. I think just that season um, that he came in. And obviously the the new board and Anthony DiPietro and, and and his new um, directors wanted to make a statement and geez they made a terrific statement by signing um, one of the best players the country's ever produced but the the the, the instability around that season um, I think just led to us not getting the best of Harry um, and his presence both at Melbourne Victory's level and also the A League level in general. Um, it was a funny old year, um, and you know I, I hope um, a lot of a lot of um, the people who were involved in the Harry um, decision and the Harry year are still at the club. And and while I don't know what happened internally with with Kesake, I hope um, I hope there were some learnings taken from the the Harry experiment and um, implemented with um, some success with Kesake because obviously his stature in the game in Asia um, was enormous, and, and and I would imagine um, he would have been a different kettle official together um with you know some some cultural differences and whatnot yeah. i know he used to travel with um with an entourage and his own fitness guys and all the rest of it whereas with harry there was none of that it was like i'm a, i'm here i'm part of the team the, the team physio is my physio he did have actually have his own physio with him but she was um outside of club you know personal time mm-hmm. she wasn't you know she wasn't working necessarily um on him um in you know in the lead up to games and whatnot um or not exclusively anyway um but he was very much a you know i'm part of the team i travel with the team i share a room him and archie shared a room um which was and i think maybe nathan cohen and um harry shared a room as well at some point but um um yeah it was uh no actually Cohen wasn't there it was it was archie archie and harry were roommates which was <laughs> which makes was sense archie interesting likes, archie likes to get amongst that <laughs> yeah he um yeah, he was. They were. They were. They were. They were great mates, Archie and Harry. So I'm sure they still are. But um, yeah, look, I, I'd hope there were there were significant learnings out of out of that that period of time, both with Cascade and 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 Harry previously. But um, yeah, it was uh, that year. Just the t- the timing. If it was 12 months early or 12 months later, it could have been unbelievable for the club and the league. Just that particular year, for whatever reason, there was just a period of change at the club. Um, and um, yeah, I don't think we we saw the the best of Harry, and I don't think Melbourne Victory got the best out of Harry, and I don't think Harry got what he wanted out of out of Melbourne Victory and um, and the A League in general. I know he came back, but um, yeah, it was. I think if both parties had their time again, they might do some things uh, a little bit differently. 
Nick, thank you so much for your time. I know you're not at the club anymore, but um, our listeners who have been listening to us for the last four or five years have a lot to owe to you um, to making, for fuck's sake, so great over the last few years with player access. Um, it was never as easy as it was with you. So thank you so much for um, your time at the club and your uh, your help in, in making um, this podcast thrive. And um, good luck with the uh, the new career that you're in. Um, but um, thanks, for, thanks for your time today to talk some fuck. No dramas. Thanks for inviting me on. You could be forgiven for thinking that the Mehmet and Magilton era lasted a lifetime, but it was only a year. Di Pietro's first full season as chairman was quite obviously a disaster. He bet big on a marquee and lost... He moved on, the only coach we'd ever known, and found that the grass was not always greener. But you are forgetting something. This is the don of the Melbourne football mafia. You didn't think he was going to bounce back? Have you ever seen the movie Casino, the Scorsese movie where Robert De Niro runs a casino in Vegas and there's a whole mob operation going on and the mob family send Joe Pesci to Vegas to be an enforcer and protect the whole operation? Okay, well that was Ange Postacoglu. Postacoglu was the Prince Tactician, a man who is intrinsically Melbourne. He led South Melbourne to two titles as a player and two titles as a manager in the 80s and 90s and was now taking the A-League by storm, developing a playing style that had never been seen in this country as a record-breaking Brisbane Roar took all before them in the early parts of the decade. And when the call came from the Don, the Prince was on his way back to look after the whole operation. Signing Ange was a huge coup, one of the most important signings we've ever made in our history. It will go down as the big what-ifs of the decade. What if the Socceroos' job never came up? What if he stayed at Melbourne Victory? And while he may have not won his silverware at his time at Melbourne Victory, the fingerprints of Ange still live on at Amy Park. In his first full off-season, he immediately cleaned house with some tough calls. In addition to Kuehl leaving, we said goodbye to ageing warriors like Kemp, Brebner, Vargas, Pondelyak, Alsop and Hernandez. All championship players, some not ready to go. Some new heads like Traore, Milligan and Finkler were now able to flourish under Andrew's system. Results and enthusiasm around the terraces improved. After a preliminary final loss in Andrew's first season in charge, fans went into the following year full of hope. The VAC would be back on the biggest stage of all. Key pillars of a future championship team were added in Barbarossa and Teresi, but the team was derailed in round three when Ange departed for the Socceroos. Kevin Musket became manager and it took some time to find his feet. Results were initially mixed, but the Vuck managed to still finish fourth and win in week one of the finals before being eliminated. Kevin Musket now had work to do. He had to build his own squad. A lot of people say that Kevin Musket is only successful because Ange Postacoglu set the foundations before him. And to a certain extent, that is true. But Kevin Musket forged his own success. Musket's first off-season as manager brought these signings in. Barisha, Valeri. Del Pierre, Georgievsky, and Kalfala. He went out and signed five players that were all vital cogs of a championship team. Kevin Musket had the best off-season in A-League history. There's no question about that. The all-conquering team of 2014-15 was the best-ever victory team put together on the field, which culminated in a drubbing of Sydney in front of 30,000 people at Amy Park 
the Vuck were back. Matt Winley was a football writer at the Herald Sun for much of the 2010s before becoming project manager of the Team 11 bid to bring an A-League team to the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Matty Winley, thank you so much for coming on board um, back on For Fuck's Sake for the very first time in a while. Thank you very much for coming on. So do you need me now after your Ooh. fantastic monologue there? I think I'm, we're just going to agree with a lot of the Oh, man, I'm there, sweating. That was a lot of, that was a lot of talking. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of talking. Um, good Matt, to be back. So good. For, thanks for having me on. It's, yeah. uh, it's always good to chat. And it's, uh, you've, uh, you've made me smile because a, um, a lot of good memories uh, as a journalist covering um, those times, in particular the 14-15 season, which we'll touch on. But, um, yeah, no, uh, looking forward to the chat. Now, you spent many a night in the media boxes at Amy Park and Etihad Stadium throughout the decade. Can you take us back to your first few years covering football in Melbourne? Victory weren't great. Hart was in and they were brought out, uh, bought out by City and there was a legitimate feeling that the power had kind of begun to shift in Melbourne, that maybe Melbourne City would take over with all the money that came on board. Um, what was your view of the time and how huge was the signing of Ange in the quest for Victory to maintain a grip in the stranglehold um, they had in the city? Jesus, that's a that's a multifaceted question. If I've ever had one, <laughs> go for it. Um, I'm a bit vague, even myself, on when I officially sort of started uh, covering um, the A League, sort of full time. My my best recollection of it is that I, I helped the great Grantley Bernard for a while. Yeah. I, I had a, a little bit of a crossover in the office with Peter DeSiro when he was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but around about the time that Hart came in was when I started doing it properly, and I, I remember covering. I think. Their first full season was my sort of first full-ish season, and that's also when Dave Davidovich came to town, another fantastic mm-hmm. uh, partnership there in the offing of, uh, you know, the the annals of Australian football media, Winley and Davidovich coming for the Herald Sun. Like York and Cole uh, back at, uh, in, the, in the 90s? <laughs> sure, that'll do. <laughs> Who's who? Um, so, yeah, that was about when I started, and... You're right. It was um, when Hart came in. It sort of culminated with a bit of a, a time of uncertainty for, um, for for Melbourne Victory, didn't it? Yeah. And um, and there was, you know, that. I mean, the noisy neighbour type sort of mm. scenario. Obviously, they weren't city then, but um, you know, whether or not um, Hart would make a, a, a significant dent into um, the, the inroads that Victory had made when they had a, a monopoly on the marketplace. I think history will say that they probably didn't take advantage of that and haven't yet taken advantage of that. Um, However, you know, um, there was some definitely some testing times early in that in that decade. But, um, you know, Ange coming in clearly was a watershed moment um, for, for this club. And, and I'm glad you, you referenced Anthony DiPietro too, because he's someone um, that I hold in a, a ridiculously high esteem um, for what he does, uh, not only for the club, but for, for the game in general. I really, I, I really value his sort of vision for the game as a whole. And I think he's got a big role to play still uh, going forward for Australian football. Um, and so, yeah, to, the foresight from him and, and the board and, and administration to get Ange in. Um, it didn't start off in the in the best of fashions. I remember, am I right in thinking too, and I've deliberately not done a lot of research for this because it's more fun yeah. uh, to do it off the top of the head. Neither have I. I've done I no still, research into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you done any research for any of the shows? <laughs> 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 um, I feel like it was also still intersecting a little bit when I'd go to the game sort of still as a fan. Um, and I remember, I feel like I was sitting in the stands just as a as a punter um, at the Melbourne Derby. Was it 2011-12? And I feel like it was Lawrence Thomas's first game for the club too. And he didn't look great. And I think then he shipped five goals against Brisbane the following week. And or, or no, maybe there was two keepers in the first couple. 
they might have changed keepers in the first couple of weeks. Yeah, no, I think what happened was, I know Lawrence Thomas, the way he debuted was he came on, um, I think Kovic might have been sent off. Um, and mm, uh, yeah, he came on to... to uh, he played an okay game, but he um, he didn't save the penalty. But yeah, my memory of that era it kind of fades into one. I I, I think I said at the top that the Mehmet Drakovic era felt like it felt like about seven years, but it was only one. It really year. did, didn't yeah, it? it did. Yeah, uh, but it was only one year. It was only one year, so yeah, DiPietro recovered pretty well, and I reference him as being a bit of a don of the um, the Melbourne football mafia because he, he's pretty powerful. And I mean, Davidovich, um, quite often I think back in the past used to write the uh, the most influential um, figures in Australian football, and he's always kind of up there at the top. So um, him getting Ange Postecoglou was, I guess, just natural. I mean, Postecoglou is a, a Melbourne man um, who was dominating in Brisbane. It probably just didn't feel right. It had to bring Ange home, and um, and he did. And that was probably the first real huge coup um, that was that was positive because Harry Kuehl obviously was a flop, um, but Ange Postecoglou was was the first step in the right direction to uh, to Depietro kind of realizing his dream of being a powerhouse once again with Melbourne Victory. And I think you know you you don't want to take anything away from Muskie in terms of the, you know the championships that he did win, and, and I'm so glad you touched on the recruitment you know before 14, 15 because we'll, I'll, I'll touch on that again in a sec. But yeah, you know, I, that was you're, you're right. He and and, and Paul Trimboli won the title in that off season. I, yeah. I, I, I wrote that many times because they they absolutely nailed it, and I think you're right, better than any club has in the history of the A League um, that off season. But um, you know, Ange definitely put the building blocks in place, and then. You know, there was a, a fateful moment. I think it was a Saturday morning um, in France, wasn't it? Where the Socceroos yeah. got absolutely pasted for the second time in a month. And um, and I remember there was a Melbourne derby that night. And I remember um, being in the press conference with Ange and pretty much every single question to Ange in the press conference after the Melbourne derby, can't even remember what the result was, um, was... Are you, you know, are you going to take the Socceroos job? And for the next couple of weeks, it was a massive story. You know, not just in Australian football, but but Australian sport in general. I I remember that there was an intense Herald Sun interest in this story um, for the couple of weeks. The the willy wonty, the, yeah. the 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 toing and froing between the FFA and uh, and and the Victory Board around you know potential for compensation and and all that sort of stuff. So it was a seminal moment, both in in terms of the Socceroos and the path that uh, that club that team ultimately went on and, and winning the asian cup and all that sort of stuff and also but also victory because you know who's to say what would have happened you know i i think we all probably would agree that victory still would have ended up winning a couple of titles in that time if Ange yeah. was at the helm but you know Ange left and musky took over and did a fantastic job it must be said because you know without a without a coach you know worth half a half a pinch of salt um, you, you wouldn't get the job done. So um, it, it ended up being, a, I think, a, a win-win for both parties. Yeah. Just going back on the what-ifs, some other what-ifs I have, not just of the decade, but Melbourne Victory history. Um, what if uh, Travis Dodd scores that goal after James Robinson's uh, winner back in 2000? <laughs> because that, that, that likely means that Adelaide United obviously hosts the grand final. And yep. um, what happens if Melbourne Victory don't host the grand final after such a dominant season? Does the... Does the the narrative change around Melbourne Victory and, and large crowds and things like that? I think that kind of needed to happen for the boost of the league at the time. And then also, what if Cascade Honda didn't get injured? That's um that's another what if that I have. Um, but yeah, Kevin Muscat did come back. Oh, did take over the reins. He um he had a one hundred percent record up until that time as a caretaker manager. I think um in between Mehmet and Magilton, yes. he um he had yes. he had one game against Newcastle, which he won. Um, yep. 
but yeah, he um, he took the reins and things were a little bit wobbly at the start. Um, we won against, uh, I think he, uh, I can't remember who came in during the Brisbane Raw game or the Wellington Phoenix game, but then um, we lost a few games on the trot to Sydney FC and Western Sydney Wanderers. I remember Ange Postacoglu in the crowd and people were, were thinking, you know, just does Ange just go down to the dressing room at halftime and just reassess and... Um, That's right. Just give the team talk himself. Um, so it was a little bit of time for, for Kevin Musket to find his feet and um, it was very much still deploying a, a system that Ange Postacoglu was famous for, but Kevin Musket trying to put his own spin on it i guess mm. given the he didn't really tweak it that year i don't yeah I, I remember you know still playing fifa video games and trying to break the system <laughs> by you know still deploying this no striker in the two yes. wide wings <laughs> and the game did not like it yeah um but and and musky really didn't change it for memory in that season at all it, it was still andrew's team and you're right it was a bit awkward i don't know if awkward's the right word but it, it did was if there were times where it was a little bit awkward would andrew would be on the stands or standing down on the pitch talking to his great mate trimmers and, and yeah. all that sort of stuff I think it was better handled from that off-season onwards. And then it was really Muskie's team. He, he deployed a bit of a tactical formation switch, had those great recruits, as you say, and um, and, and, then, and then we're away. Yeah, so talk a bit, a bit, about, sorry, a bit more about the recruits. Um, as I said before, they were like vital. I mean, when you compare it to the off-season recruits in Melbourne Victory this season um, and the, the, the four new foreigners that we've got and none of them mm. have made an impact just yet. Um, but mm. we brought in Barisha, the, the, the best striker the league has ever seen. Um, that's, yeah. another, that's another huge acquisition by Di Pietro, really, um, to, to really go out and throw marquee money when Brisbane Raw seemed to be unwilling to do so uh, to the extent that Melbourne Victory were. They put all of their faith in Bessart Barisha, who then delivers the opening goal of the the 2015 grand final. So pretty much pays for himself um, straight off the bat with that um, grand final goal. Carl Valeri, who became an absolute, um, yeah, just absolute uh, pin of the, uh, linchpin of the, um, of, of the team. Uh, Del Pierre, uh, Georgievsky and Cal Fowler. Cal Fowler and Del Pierre among the, um, the greatest ever players to pull on a, a jersey from Melbourne Victory. Right, just so amazing. I'll, I'll give you one, my, my quick synopsis of each of those. Right? Yeah. So Barisha, best striker in the history of the A-League. Valeri, one of my favourite people and I think one of the most inspirational leaders in the history of the A-League. Del Pierre, I think almost the best signing in the history of the A-League. Yeah. Uh, he you know, cannot be understated. Georgievsky, out of character, brings you know a lot both on and off the pitch, but I don't think anyone can deny the sort of the drive that he was sort of bringing from um, you know the 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 um, he always they always switched that year. That was the strange yep. year where you had Georgievsky, Garia, Galloway. Like there was a hell of a lot of switching between left and right back. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, and then Ben Kalfler. I mean, there's no doubt uh, that 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 first season that he had was his best by far mm-hmm. uh, in in, um, in in victory colours, and um, and and he lit it up. Um, something shocking. It was an unbelievable. Um, there was another sign in that year too. I'm looking on Wikipedia as well. Michael Turnbull. So that gave me yeah, great. Uh, I left that, that one great, out. Gave you <laughs> meme, great, great meme material. You're right. As well. Yeah. So they all delivered. They all delivered in their own way. Yeah. Um, that was. I don't know. To, to preempt what you're about to say, like 2014, 15 A League season for me was the peak. You know, in terms of my enjoyment factor for my own selfish. Um, you know. Uh, sport covering um, perspective mm-hmm. but I in Melbourne victory utterly enjoyable and then um, and clearly for the fans in terms of winning the title but I think the style of the, the style of play the general play was just fantastic as well from from go to woe you know one of my most memorable games covering was the, the first game of that season 14 15 
victory was three nil up. I think against Western Sydney at Etihad Stadium, Etihad was rocking. It was about it was only thirty one or thirty two thousand, but the fans were absolutely on point that day. And I think Barbarous has hit an absolute rocket to make it three nil. Uh, I reckon at about uh, yeah about the thirty minute mark of that first game, and I turned to Davudovic and I said, "Victory's going to win the title." Um, yeah. And it had that air of inevitability right through it after that. And but that was the year to, like so. I think City had Via. Um, that was first season of City. Yeah. They had Via for the first little while. Um, they were they were rollicking as well in terms of being an attacking force. They were leaking a hell of a lot of goals at the back, but they were really, really good fun to watch. Um, it culminated in that amazing semi-final where mm-hmm. I, I think was the, the high point of the competition um, to date. You know, you had, I think, about 52,000 people at the semi-final that Eddie had, victory winning 3-0. Um, but across the road at, at the MCG, you had about 50,000 at Collingwood versus Geelong. And I, I think that would have been the night where the AFL would have been really sitting up and taking notice and going, yeah. shit, like, um, these guys are starting to get it right. And I think history will clearly show that it has, it's gone no. a bit downhill since then. But that was, a, that was an amazing season. Um, it had the Asian Cup in the middle of it as well, which, um, you know, derailed Victory's momentum a little bit slightly, but obviously was a great high point for Australian football as well. So just everything about 14-15 um, makes me smile both as a football fan and as a journalist covering the sport. Yeah, it all went perfectly and you're right. Um, I remember at halftime of that semi-final and there was a bit of nerves among Victory fans, even despite how well we were playing during that season coming up against Melbourne City um, when they seemed to be getting it right as well and, and coming up yep. against them in the semi-final at halftime being 2-0 up and kind of going outside um, outside the the ground at halftime to, uh, to have a break and you kind of say to your mates uh, we're going to go to a grand final next week and that's um, that's just a great feeling and um, something we haven't uh, experienced too much we had that that kind of stealing grand final. We stole the grand final in 2018, but this was the last time we were really, really dominant. Um, no. And that grand final was something else. Yeah. Sorry, that atmosphere. I mean, I know we all say it before. We don't need to wax lyrical about it. There yeah. was the, the spat throughout the course of the the year uh, in terms of, you know, the, the AFL and, um, and FFA, you know, cocking up the booking at Eddie had and all that sort of stuff. The lucky um, accident. It, it's like a lucky well, yeah, accident. Yeah. yeah. Look, I mean, in, in hindsight, you know, you still – Look, it was a fantastic day. So anyone that was there was, is not going to forget for for a moment for the rest of their lives the atmosphere that day and all that sort of stuff. It was fantastic. I think we all want. Oh, I don't know. Everyone's different. I mean, you still I would th- I still want to pack in fifty five thousand into Etihad or Marvel or whatever it's called now for any future grand finals. Mm-hmm. But um, for the lucky thirty odd thousand that were in the ground that day, it will be um, it'll be one that'll live long in the memory. That's for sure. Absolutely. Now you're not a journalist anymore. You are uh, still working with the the Team Eleven bid, which we hope gets up in the next round of expansion. But um, since you're not a journalist anymore, is there any kind of mm-hmm. uh, behind the scenes stories that you can spill, not just from that time, but maybe just your time covering the victory that was. Uh, kind of interesting or of note that you can now um, reflect on or, or divulge now that um, hmm. that's a good question you should have given me notice on that question yeah. it has because I think that one of the um, the good things about covering um, any other sport other than footy in Melbourne and any other sport other than rugby league in New South Wales and, and Queensland is that it, what you see is kind of what you get like the access is quite good and open because it sort of has to be to fight yeah. for that market share um, with, you know, the more dominant sport in the marketplace. Um, so I'm going to be a little bit boring and say no, but, I, I, but but whether or not, I think fans, you know, potentially do like to hear this this sort of stuff in that, you know, because they want to be proud of their club and all mm. that sort of stuff. I mean, I can't speak highly enough in my time 
dealing with Melbourne Victory with the people involved in the organisation, the access they provided, you know, whether it was Ange or whether it was Muskie, you know, the ability to go and sit in, you know, on everything for like a week, you know, once a year to do all the team meetings yeah. and everything like that to get that behind the scenes access. Players, all beautiful people, um, you know, got a lot of time for, for a lot of them. Um, quite a few, you know, I consider really good mates of mine, you know, you're, you're the ones that are similar sort of age to me, like, you know, the the Broxies and Ados and um, Carls and all that sort of stuff, all fantastic people and fantastic ambassadors for the club and, and, and the game in general. Uh, and I, I, so I think that's something for, for Victory fans to, to be proud of, that, you know, they really are a, a good bunch of people. Uh, and and doing um, a great job to to pioneer the the sport in in this country um, and in this state in the A League era. Um, you know, I think the game clearly has its difficulties at the moment. We all know that, and we hope that it, it gets back on the upward trajectory um, sooner rather than later. But um, I think for the most part, victory has, has upheld their end of the bargain. Um, you know, this decade, and um, and and the fans can be proud of of, of their club and the way that they've conducted themselves. Yeah, th- thank you very much, Matt, for, for coming on. I know um, uh, that you're currently what uh, waiting outside to pick up the kids. Um, we had uh, yep. recorded with Buds. Yeah, yep. we recorded with Buds who did the same thing for the team of the decade, which is <laughs> going to air later on. So it's uh, everyone's on the fly. So thanks very much for making the time. Um, this does conclude part one of uh, the 2010s episode. Uh, in the next edition, which is dropping tomorrow, we um, go into the slight decline of Kevin Musket stealing a championship, an unlikely championship in Newcastle. And then we talk to Paul Williams about the signing of Cascade Honda and some of the missed opportunities um, the club uh, had um, with regards to marketing and the commercial aspect of things. So uh, keep it locked onto the FES podcast feed for part two dropping as well tomorrow and then part three on Friday. Uh, Matt Winley, thank you very much for joining us. Um, since Buds isn't here, do you want to give us a mon the vuck to uh, end the episode? Oh, can I do it in his voice too? Yeah, go. Yeah, do it. Cool. Mon the vuck. Mon.